freeman and slave, patrician and plebeian, lord and serf, guildmaster and journeyman, in a word, oppressor and oppressed, stood in constant opposition to one another, carried on an uninterrupted, now hidden, now open fight, a fight that each time ended, either in a revolutionary reconstitution of society at large, or in the common ruin of the contending classes. must love them both, those whose opinions we share and those whose opinions we reject, for both have labored in the search for truth, and both have helped us in finding it. Common Ruin, Episode 6 To be or not to be a Christian, Marxist activist and Platonist philosopher Chanel Bahi reads Bertrand Russell's 1927 essay Why I'm Not a Christian with Michael Acuna, and debates the question of God's existence. Okay, today I'm joined with Chanel Bahi. Chanel has a BA in philosophy from Loyola University with a specialization in platonic studies. Full disclosure, Chanel and I were in a relationship for many years. So if I should receive any weird comments from incels or anything inappropriate, that's gonna be a serious problem for you. But having said that, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself, Chanel. Hi, Michael. It's really good to be here with you tonight. I've been looking forward to this. So, as you said, I did my undergrad at Loyola University, philosophy, took a keen interest in platonic scholarship, and I just wanted to be here today to talk with you about a topic that is kind of dear to our hearts. Yes. <laughs> um, we might not agree on them, or this topic not well, but I think it's something that we care about a lot. So interested to hash it out with you. Now, the reason I wanted you on specifically is because we sort of arrived at opposite conclusions from different backgrounds. So right. you had a conventional Catholic upbringing. And from that, you ended up becoming an atheist. Whereas I was raised an atheist and I've recently come to a Christian faith myself. When we were together, we were both atheists, and we more or less saw eye to eye on this specific subject. But what we're going to discuss today are arguments for and against God, and what we're going to be using as a basis for our discussion is Bertrand Russell's 1927 essay, Why I'm Not a Christian. Yeah, that sounds about right. And, um, you know, just to clarify a little bit, I, I grew up in a household that was, uh, you know, my father was an atheist, my mother was spiritual, but not religious, but I did go to religious schools my entire life. But from an early age, I had serious questions about the validity of what I was being taught, both on kind of an ontological level, whether I knew it or not, and also on a personal level, due to the experiences I was having with religious people at the time. So all that has kind of come to inform my stance. And I, I definitely felt a lot of sympathy with Russell when I read his essay. So I'm excited to get into it. 
right? And Russell being one of the foremost analytic philosophers, he has the virtue of really getting to the crux of the issue in this essay. And so everyone knows this essay was later elaborated into a book containing other essays, and it's actually derived from a lecture that he gave at the South London branch of the National Secular Society. And he enumerates his points, and we're going to more or less follow it chronologically. And we're going to begin with his argument against the first cause justification for belief in God. So this is familiar to theists from all denominations and creeds. So the argument from first cause is that since the universe has a beginning, ontologically necessitates a beginner. And the reason why Russell and many other atheists find this fallacious is because they think that either their special pleading in defense of God in the sense that he's immune from that same logical necessity, or it reduces to a reductio ad absurdum of sorts. So is this an argument that you found resonance in, or is it something that you could sort of see the weakness in his position in? So I definitely found resonance in this article. I had actually never read it before, which was surprising to me, Uh, but it's something that I kind of had intuitively been feeling my entire life. And this is something I think we've discussed before. But yes, so the first cause argument being that not only does there have to be a first cause, but this first cause, if you're following the Christian tradition, it it probably has to be something that causes itself. It's outside of space and time, right? It it has all these things that is contained within it that can lead it to be what causes other things um, and not cause an infinite regress. So I think what Russell's getting at in this, he goes on to say that That's all well and good, but it's basically equally as logical for him to say that the universe doesn't have to have that at all. That's not a necessary, it's not a logical necessity yet. Basically, I I liked how he said that this was a lack of imagination on our part. Uh, We are, what I'm understanding him to say is that we are bound by what we experience, that we live in a finite world where we are born and we die, and that's all we kind of come to witness in our lives. And therefore, maybe we think that something has to have a first cause or a cause in order for there to be our lack of imagination that leads us to that. And it's just as logical or illogical to think that maybe nothing has to have a cause. It can just be. He gestures at the eternal universe hypothesis, which in 1927 still had a lot of proponents. In modern cosmology, the field has more or less coalesced around a position of an origin, whether it be the Big Bang or some derivative thereof. So most cosmologists do posit today a beginning point. Now, what this comes down to is whether or not matter itself is eternal. And the theist position is that logically based upon our powers of deductive reasoning, everything has to have a beginning. The reason why God is metaphysically satisfying is because he is eternal. He's timeless. He's spaceless. He's non-contingent and entirely self-sufficient. 
You see, but now you say that, but there, there are all the conditions that one would need for a creator. And and that's, you know, that can be said, but there are many, there's a, who, who am I thinking of? Uh, maybe Occam, who would say that, you know, belief as faith uh, is necessary. You can't arrive at that through law. There's, even with that being said, there's still a hint of faith that has to lead you to that. You cannot arrive to that. I think you can arrive at a theist position without necessarily affirming faith. I think that's how Aristotle did it, for instance, with this prime mover theory. Mm-hmm. I think that you needn't necessarily harbor faith. I think this is something that you can reasonably deduce. With and that's fine. But I, what I'm saying is that even amongst believers, this is not a general consensus. There's plenty who believe that that leap of faith needs to be taken, that you can't arrive at God through reason alone. Kierkegaard would affirm that. Yes. But I think that in this particular case, we can use a logical argument to arrive at a hypothesis that would entail a creator God. And Russell's argument that we could, or that we would have to apply the same rationale to God himself and ask what of his origins I think is applying the laws of what we examine in the natural world to a definitionally supernatural entity. Mm-hmm. So God doesn't need to have an origin. Natural phenomena must have an origin. Mm-hmm. The material universe obeys certain laws, but God does not obey those because he is immaterial. So that's why I felt his argument didn't really persuade me. And that's fair, but he even went on to say that uh, some of these laws that we take to be laws are really more chaotic than we ever have really understood and are still not fully understanding even at this point in time, many years removed from his writing this. So I think that he was kind of hinting at this kind of hubristic thinking we have to think that we can apply this logic that we think we have command over, right? He, He distinguishes, you know, human law, natural law. We think that we have these things figured out. And we're kind of applying what we think we have figured out to this, that this must mean that that this has a beginning, that this must mean that. And I think that really what he's getting at is this hubristic thinking combined with what he calls the poverty of our imagination um, leads us to believe that we have to have these certain things like a unmoved mover in order for there to be existence. And it's informed by our material conditions. That's all we know, Right. We only know things that are finite that end, and we think that they have to have some beginning outside of space and time for that to persist. But we really, he thinks that's unknowable, and this mightn't just be projection on our part. Uh, So that's where that leap of faith is going to come in, right? I, I disagree. I think that... Well, that's fine. As human beings, all we have are inductive and deductive reasoning. And as it happens... Both of those principles of cognition actually work in the real world, and we are able to mm-hmm. solve problems employing by employing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So we have no reason to jettison them when we're thinking of matters that are metaphysical. And this brings us to his natural law argument, where, as you said, he's making the argument that very often the laws that we think we apprehend turn out to be wrong, that the universe doesn't quite work out as we think, but we have been refining them over the millennia. 
Mm-hmm. But his point was that just because natural laws may exist doesn't logically imply a lawgiver. Yes. But we what we do know is that the universe does obey discernible laws. And as it happens, that would just as much suggest a divine lawgiver than it would suggest all of this came into being through random series of events. Well, we have to think, though, that some of the laws, um, many of them, you know, do have things that we can parse out and say, you know, X is going to lead to Y, right? But there's plenty of these laws that have been discovered pertaining to things that are completely random, chaotic things that just cannot be parsed out in that way, like on an atomistic level, for example. And there's there's no real way of, of tracking and and predicting how certain things will pop in and out of existence. And that's something that science is grappling with right now. And I think that might have been, you know, what he was touching upon, that those are things that we just cannot, no matter what we try to do at this point, really figure out a rhyme and reason to. Yeah, I think uh, quantum mechanics, for instance, and our limited understanding of the physical laws that govern it. Yeah, and that's fi- kind of like the final frontier to me right now of finding these things out, of, of really parsing this out. I feel like a lot of philosophers now have moved into this when it comes to the cosmological questions. That's where they're trying to eke out these things. And it's it's very tedious. It's hard won. It's not progressing that quickly. And I don't think that it'll ever really give us hard answers because that's kind of how I view this whole thing. It's really a matter of faith at this point, and and kind of going back to the first cause argument, I think it just boils down to Russell would say that, you know, it is the poverty of our imagination and all of that. But if you are going to believe, um, he would probably say that you can reason so far, but it still is a leap of faith at the end of the day, because an unmoved mover is itself something that we cannot prove that has never existed in our natural world. That's ignoring divine revelation and the witnesses to it. Well, see, that's that's outside of this argument, however. That is nice. I I think those are very separate issues, actually. So yeah, so I think he's just trying to say that, you know, you can believe this, but it's just as equally absurd as what I'm saying. I I just disagree that it's equally absurd. I think to posit a creator of the cosmos is far more intellectually satisfying than trying to imagine, if we can, that all of this came into being from nothing. Mm-hmm. Logically, or maybe it's all as we know, nothing. You know, that's another. Nothing can derive from nothing. It is simply nonsensical. Mm-hmm. Everything has an origin, as far as we know. As far as we know, yes. So to argue that there isn't a creator God, in my estimation, would suggest that matter itself is eternal. And that is very difficult for me to accept, given what I just described, that the laws of nature are such that everything has an origin. Mm -hmm. And we would therefore have to conceptualize something that was non-natural and eternal. Because only non-natural phenomena could be eternal. 
Well, something coming from nothing is non-natural. Something existing for all eternity and never having been created by anything is also unnatural. We don't know of anything like that. They're all kind of equally unnatural. Well, as a Platonist scholar, you understand that the alternative to a personal creator god in the Abrahamic tradition could be something like Plato's abstract objects. Correct. Those could be eternal. And we could argue that math itself derives from them. And we do know that the universe obeys mathematical laws. And that could be an alternative hypothesis to a personal creator God. Right, exactly. I just happen to believe that the Platonic forms reconcile themselves in a creator God. But we can get to that later. Sure. So the next argument he tries to refute is the argument from design. And the modern version of this would be the fine-tuning argument, which basically states that the laws of the universe are so specific and finely tuned that just changing them in the most infinitesimal degree would make life impossible. So it's almost as if everything is conspired towards the existence of life. What Russell tries to suggest is that if you look at the imperfections of the world, it would really cause one to doubt that there is a higher intelligence behind it. I think this prob- this is a problem from a Christian position because it ignores the consequences of original sin. Yeah, and actually I was going to make this point. I was going to kind of go outside and say if I were to be a believer, I would probably say that you know, the fallen nature of man might inform why there is so much pain and suffering in the world. And there is so much that, as Russell describes, he dislikes, you know, we're told this would be the best of all possible worlds created, right? But how could that be so if there is X, Y, and Z things that are are just patently awful that we experience, Um, the ruthless system of nature, all of these things. So I can see that argument. I can see the validity in it, but, you know, I'm just going to fall back on this, that these things, and he talks about, I believe, natural selection in this. You know, people had argued the tail of a rabbit being a certain color made it easier to shoot. And that's a very hubristic view to take, um, that it was made this way so that we could enjoy it, that we could hunt it more easily, that all of these things were made in a certain way so that humans could flourish, Right. But the reality of natural selection is it's about adaptation. You're dealt a hand upon your birth that has been kind of passed down to you through generations and mutations and all of this. And if you get eaten and killed, (laughs) you're not going to pass on those genes and it's going to adapt into something that's better suited to that environment. That's not by design. That that just seems to be something that occurs as a byproduct. Hold on. I think that we can reconcile the two positions, and that is, in fact, well, what I... Well, maybe saying not necessarily by design. Let me say that. Let me use that word. It's not necessarily by design that that happens. It could be, but the general gist of what I'm saying is that all of this could be a very happy accident that occurred in a universe that may well be occurring in some other form, some lesser form, with just microbes or some you know, hitherto unknown life form on some other distant planet in another galaxy, we're not to know. 
But the fact that we evolved to this level of consciousness and and everything that we've achieved as humans, I don't think that just because this has happened necessarily implies some sort of creator. I think it very well could be that it just happened. I do agree that, you know, where you could take issue with it as a believer is, you know, this can all be explained. All the, the badness in the world could be explained by the fallen nature of man and original sin. But I think those actually might be two separate issues entirely. They are separate issues, but let me just fixate on the evolution of intelligent life for a moment. Sure. So I would propose two things. First of all, the likelihood of intelligent life evolving on this planet or any planet is incredibly slight. We know this because of all of the organisms that have lived and died failed to rival the human species when it comes to its degree of intelligence. Right. Secondly, the laws of random mutation and selection pressures giving rise to the origin of species, while that's undeniably true in my estimation, I still sense the hand of providence behind it. One could say that, yes, all of the species on this planet did evolve through natural mechanisms, but that this was guided and and God himself saw the telos, like this is all by his design. That is the language of God, as it were, Mm -hmm. that human life would evolve and that animal life and plant life would evolve in such a way that it would enable our species to flourish and to progress. I don't see that as a mutually irreconcilable position. I think that it actually complements the theory of design. And that's fine. And I think um, that's all well and good. But at the end of the day, what it comes down to, I think, for Russell and myself and people of a you know similar mindset is that it could just as very well been a very small chance that happened. And because that small chance happened to us, we think it's very important that it happened to us. And it might, it might be, it is important to us because it's why we are able to even have this discussion. So that's important in a way. But do I think it's important in a way that suggests a design, you know, a hand of God that made it to be so? I'm not yet convinced. And I do appreciate what you're saying, but... Well, yeah, I wouldn't expect that this one point would be sufficient to convince you otherwise. <laughs> but let's let's go ahead and move to his next argument. Sure. So this was his critique of the moral argument. And the moral argument states that objective morality is impossible without a divine lawgiver. Russell's response is to ask whether right or wrong is such due to God's fiat. Mm -hmm. And if it isn't, that would logically imply that right or wrong preceded God. My response to this would be that God himself is the form of the good. He is a benevolent force. He is a loving creator. And bad or evil in a Christian ontology is not a category we accept. In our opinion, Evil is just a privation of good, just as darkness is an absence of light. It isn't a thing in itself, in other words. It is something in relation to 
something else which is good. Good does exist, and God is the form of the good. He is the essence of good. And I can't see how you can argue an objective morality without God, but perhaps you have an argument to the contrary. Well, I think that's opening an entire other can of worms that might require another podcast episode. But I just wanted to say, before I get into the heart of this, that I thought his um, his kind of dig at Kant and his is almost saying that Kant's conception of <laughs> a god as clinging to his mother's skirts, basically, was, <laughs> yeah, that was pretty, that was pretty good. Uh, I really laughed at that one. It's very condescending. Anyway, yeah, it was very condescending, and I was, I was, I was taken aback for a moment. That's, you know, that's the kind of dig you want someone to make at you if you're in uh, this field. You know? Let me just say that in my readings of Russell, he was unfair to a lot of really exceptional philosophers. I guess. Yeah, this and I do believe Kant is one among many philosopher, but I did find it funny. Yeah, it was a funny. Did. <laughs> He framed it in an amusing way, I agree. But are you of the opinion that you can have an objective morality without God? I don't think that God is necessary for an objective morality, no. But I want to kind of hone in on the argument he was making in particular, where good is kind of a result of the creative fiat act. Like good and evil themselves are are came into existence from from that act itself, right? Because it had to be in the act itself that this came about because God cannot be evil. He cannot cr- contain evil within him. Correct. So it has to be in the act itself. And that poses some problems. For God himself, there is as Russell says, no difference between right and wrong, because it is in the creative act that he makes the point of differentiation. Well, and so if you're approaching this from a privation point of view, then his argument, I think, does fall apart a little bit there, right? Because he's positing that this was an act of creation of good and bad at the same time. You know, I'm not sure how he would respond if it was thought of as a purely creative good act, whereas where the consequence of that is the shadow of that, which is evil, um, that kind of exists due to our interaction with the good, right? So I think that this isn't his most solid argument of all of the things that he says in this essay, but I do think that there is some merit in what he says here. It is thought-provoking to see it in that way, and there are passages in the Bible where God speaks of allowing evil to befall people. And the language in the Bible can even invoke the notion that God is the origin of evil, that he creates. And and he does go on to say some a bit like that. So I know quite a bit of biblical history, um, but I'm not a scholar and expert in it. So I can't tell you everything that's been said on the matter. In some ways, my position is an extra-biblical theological extrapolation. I think that if you take the Bible in totality, you you will arrive at the position that I articulated. I see. But one can very easily isolate passages and verses, and that could that would lend credibility to Russell's framing of the problem. But again, I think you need to ha- have a broader perspective. 
I think what he's saying um, at the end of the day here is that if you are to accept that the difference between right and wrong is due to God's fiat, then we have to understand that the the act itself is what has created the differentiation and the instantiation of those things, and that for God himself, there is no difference within him between right and wrong, and therefore you can't say God is wholly good. And that seems to be for him a a logical if-then statement, right? Um, right. I just disagree with that framing. I don't think that that would accurately represent what God is or what his creation is. And that's fair, especially I see in light of how you're framing this um, badness as a absence of rather than a thing created in itself. Right. Um, so I do see the merit in that, yes. But I I can also, I sympathize with Russell's point of view because I don't necessarily take that biblical perspective on this. Yeah, yeah. There have been theologians throughout history who did not share my conception of Christian ontology. So he could have well been responding to other theories of good and evil. And that would Absolutely. be perfectly fine. But I just feel that there is an answer to that question. And it is the one that I responded with. But moving on to the next section, this is the argument about God being a necessity to remedy injustice. So the idea is that the world is rife with instances of injustice and for there to be a satisfactory conclusion to it, we would have to posit a system of divine rewards and punishments because humans being fallible, our justice system is imperfect. So if we want to believe that there is justice in the universe, we need to believe that there is a God who would be the arbiter of it. What were your thoughts on that? I really enjoyed what he was saying in this part of the essay, kind of honing in on the fact that this world, and this is something that, you know, believers and non-believers can agree on, is a fallen world, right? It's one rife with injustice. We see it every day, and it's kind of what we know. It's almost the rule. It seems like for so much of human history, and even in our daily lives, we see more acts of injustice taking place than justice. And what he kind of, uh, his analogy is that if we see a crate of oranges that's moldy on the top, it's gone off, Uh, What's most logical to assume? It's probably to assume that all the way down is rotten based off of what we can see and and kind of the law of, you know, statistical averages. Right. And I think what he's getting at is that it's reassuring for people to think that there's some sort of justice that will be given in another life that we can't ever experience on Earth. But it makes more sense for us to kind of think that if there is anything, it's probably nothing because that would be a true injustice. It's we're experiencing injustice here on earth. It's fucked up. It's a fallen state. And it it makes sense that that's probably all we're ever going to have. No justice is to be served. I agreed with Russell that this is a very weak basis for affirming God. I don't think that that in and of itself can bring us to a theistic understanding of the origins of life. But I do think that 
as human beings and as human beings who have almost an innate sense of justice, what Christians would say, justice is written on the moral code of our hearts. Like we just have mm-hmm. an innate sense of right and wrong that that God created us with. But even if we posit a purely naturalistic origin of human life, we we see that human beings do have a kind of rudimentary idea of right and wrong and justice and injustice. And it is dissatisfying to think that in a world suffused with injustice, that people who committed acts of wrong will never face a righteous judgment. Right. And that's very uncomfortable. And and as Russell says, yes, that's exactly right. Um, We don't want to believe that. And he even says, you know, it's something to be concerned about, but you shouldn't, you know, lose your mind over it, which I thought was funny because I feel like I'm definitely a person that loses my mind over these things. And I'm sure you sympathize with that, Michael. Of course, given that we're Marxists (laughs) and communists, um, until the institutions we live under are fundamentally altered, we exist within a system of injustice every day of our lives. That's not even to mention the interpersonal acts of injustice that will always be with us because human beings are fallen creatures. Exactly. And I guess the generous interpretation of what Russell is saying, you know, maybe we can take from this, it can bog you down, but it shouldn't. Maybe we can use this in some way to you know, go about our lives, not let it dictate, but maybe inspire us to try to improve matters somewhat. Um, I might be being too generous to Russell, but maybe someone else would say that about what he said. Well, Russell was a socialist, and Mm -hmm. I think he would be sympathetic to that point of view. Um, But we can get a little further into that later. His next section has to do with the character of Christ himself. And he begins by agreeing with certain of Christ's maxims. So the principle of turning the other cheek, judge not yet ye be judged, give to him that asketh of thee, and giving to the poor. And this is in keeping with Russell's general socialistic sentiments. So I could see why he would find resonance in those points of Christ. But then he gets into what he alleges are moral defects in Christ. And the first one he cites is the second coming. So he's arguing that Christ was being dishonest about his second coming. Right. And I was interested to hear what you had to say about that because... um, I have plenty of thoughts. (laughs) So theologically, there's a few points of view with respect to the second coming. So... I happen to affirm what's called preterism, and preterism holds that many of the Bible's prophecies have already come to pass. And one of those is Christ's symbolic second coming. So in this interpretation, ancient Israel is fulfilled in the Christian church itself. And Christ's return, as I said, was symbolic in the judgment and destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70. That was his second coming. That is what Christ was referring to when he spoke to his disciples and said that some of them would not taste death before he returned. I see. So you would say to the people who are 
to this day sitting around waiting for doomsday and the second coming of Christ to to maybe reconsider that notion, maybe look towards this view that you're purporting that this may well, have already happened. There's two, there's full preterism and then partial preterism. So full preterism would say that all of the Bible's prophecies, including those in Revelation, have come to pass. Others say that some of them or most of them have. And I'm kind of not determined as to which I think is more likely. But I do believe that Christ's second coming is part of Christian eschatology, his literal second coming. He will return. I do believe that. But I think what he was referring to in the New Testament passages that Russell is citing was what I had just stated, his symbolic return in judgment against Israel. I see. This entire passage for me, you know, there's not much I take issue with. I liked what he said about he pointed out, I believe, the wiseness of Socrates and, and others in their approach to being challenged. Instead of, you know, doing what he said Christ did, which is threatening you know, eternal damnation, hellfire, you, you you know, this is what your fate is going to be. Yeah, uh, Socrates getting, getting... had what he considers a wiser approach, which is, you know, making people think hoping that they arrive to the right conclusion. But if they don't, it's not something that you have to threaten them with anything else over. Of course. And but I, I can see the wisdom in that. And I, I can understand uh, Russell's point here. But the difference between Christ and Socrates is Christ is the divine logos. He is God. And therefore, he has the authority to condemn people in a way that Socrates never did. Right. And that's, you know, that's assuming that that is the case, right? Like if if that is the case, then yes, um, if Jesus Christ was assumed to be um, merely a man, then I think it would be very fair to say that the proper way to go about sharing these ideas and making people question uh, their reality and, and all of these other things is probably the way Socrates did it over the way Jesus would have done it, right? However, if yes, if you're going to assume he's a divine being, right, that kind of makes it take on a whole nother character, which is difficult for someone to argue with, right? But I don't necessarily think that means it's any more correct. If you're a secular person, and which, which Russell was, but I'm saying yeah. a, a theist, a Christian theist, could easily respond to that distinction between Socrates and Christ. A good Christian would not go around condemning people to hell because we don't have that authority. And that, and frankly, the salvation of their soul is between them and God. So I don't think it would behoove a Christian to go around telling people that they're condemned. I don't think that would be the correct approach. I think right, a so I think Russell would, takes would issues... More- but but when we're speaking of Christ himself, there's a very clear distinction. I see that. So it seems where Russell's issue really is, is giving him almost a, he thinks it might be wrong to be giving him this special station where he's allowed to kind of threaten in this way. And he might think that, how is this a just thing? How is this good? How is this the way that a moral agent would act, right? But if you, I guess if you're assuming and, or positing like you are, that he kind of exists outside of that paradigm where that would apply, then of course he would be able to say that without any repercussion to his character. 
Right. And I think Russell has a deeper critique, though, because to Russell, there's a moral problem in the very conception of hell. He thinks that the notion that hell exists is a problem, that it implies that God is an immoral being. Right. Because what moral being would create life and then subject it to an eternal punishment? That is Russell's point. And I disagree with that. So I think that there's a few ways of interpreting hell. The first thing is that it's not necessarily that God sends us to hell for violating his commandments, but rather he gives us what we want. We violate his commandments because we don't want to be close to God. So in a sense, he is giving us precisely what we're asking for, an absence of his presence. Another way of thinking about hell is that hell itself is an example of God's goodness because it exists as a punishment for sin. So how could God be good if he sent sinful people to heaven? Think about that for a moment. If Russell is saying that hell is a problem morally, but heaven isn't, then that would imply that no matter what you did in life, you should be given access to that paradise. And I think that would be an injustice. And God, as an omnipotent and benevolent being, is an arbiter of perfect justice. Why would he allow that to happen? So I believe what you're talking about is when he's saying that hellfire as a punishment for sin is a doctrine of cruelty, as he states. Yes. Right. And and he doesn't say much more about it there. But he's implying that that is immoral, that that's one of Christ's moral defects. Right, that it dwells in cruelty, right? And and then how is that in line with a creator that is supposedly good? Right. And and, I, uh, I think that's incorrect. Well, I think it all kind of rolls back into the problems, greater problems than this, right? If a God is truly good, if there is a God and they're like this, why would they create a universe for their own amusement, really, or for whatever reason that's given, that had any chance of entertaining anything that wasn't perfect, right? Because it seems like it's us kind of suffering for it, right? For the for someone else's ends. Yeah, this and is I think that's of- that what Russell would say. Like it all harkens back to that. And and you know, the concept of hell just being another instantiation of that, another thing by which you know, we have to dance on the flames of the coals for whatever reason is deemed so. Yeah, this goes back to the broader problem of evil. Why would a benevolent God create a universe where evil could exist? And I explained why I think evil as an ontological category is problematic from a Christian point of view. But also when it comes to why would God allow us to have the freedom to do wrong? to disobey him and thereby disobey what's good and right. I think it's because God didn't want to create a race of robots. He wasn't interested in that. It's not part of his creative plan. He wanted us to have the freedom to do what's right, because to him it's more beautiful to have people freely choose to do the right thing. Well, maybe Russell would counter with, you know, if this God is so omnipotent, right, 
he would have created some way. I just don't think that he would would think that that was a moral answer to that question. I don't think the question itself is reducible to moral or immoral. It has to do with God's vision of life, why he created what he did. Well, if if I think Russell would say if God was so um, all-knowing and, and knew the consequences of everything that he could create, because that's all contained within him, he would probably choose, rather than allow people to participate in this kind of suffering, choose not to do anything at all. Um, but you have to remember that for God, his creation isn't limited to the physical world. So a lot of what we see now, this goes back to the issue of injustice. A lot of what we see and a lot of the pain and suffering that we experience in this fallen world is rectified in the afterlife. That is how God ensures that justice prevails. So that this is not the conclusion. We have an immortal soul that supersedes the natural world. And that is where things are rectified. Right. But this is all, again, on the assumption that yeah. there was an intelligent creator. But most importantly for this part of the argument is that for Russell, I think he thinks that you, if you're assuming that within this creator, everything that could make the universe and what exists in it is there, why choose to let this be the case where you could have just as easily chosen nothing? And him deciding that might have been him dwelling in something that Russell might think is not so good because it, as a consequence, participates in injustice, and even if it wasn't intended, but it is a byproduct. And yeah. he would know that it's a byproduct in his wisdom. And that's Russell's own hubris and thinking that he knows what the design should have been if it were to be perfectly just. You know, and that's that's one way of looking at it. Yes, absolutely. I think Russell would say, you know. Yeah, that's a failure of his own imagination. Right. I'm sure he would counter that toward you as well. Yeah, you know, he sure. might take issue with the, you know, there's this argument that because this universe exists, that means it's good. Right. And something is better than nothing. You know, that's that's a, a line uh, I think is informing this or at least is related to it rather. But that, again, is an assumption. In my opinion, it is an assumption, but I think it's an assumption that would enjoy wide support from every living being in the cosmos. Yeah, it's surely better for us in a way because we are participating in it now. And it would be unfortunate if we didn't have that. Um, and yes, we have to suffer the consequences of, of everything. But to say that it is better in some grander sense that we exist rather than don't outside of ourselves, I'm not sure that I can say that or not. Well, that is... But like, this is getting into a very... We're, yeah. time, we're verging into natalism and antinatalism, and I think that's a subject for another day, perhaps. Yeah. But after his allegations of Christ's immorality or moral defects, he starts to delve into church history and how it has been problematic right. for mankind. Why don't you take the lead on that? Right. Well, I, from what I recall of this, this chapter is 
he points out how he thinks churches have been at the forefront of a lot of the more um, unjust movements of history, or at least been there supporting them, right? He cites the Salem witch trials, I believe, the Spanish Inquisition, and I have an example, um, definitely in the Spanish Civil War, the support by the church of the nationalist front uh, was a very disappointing reality. And he goes on to say that certain doctrines within the church are very unpleasant, if not toxic. The sacrament of marriage, for example, um, being indissoluble, even between uh, two people who should rightly not be together, uh, when there's a position of power imbalance. I think his main point here is that what the church has tried to do is given us very kind of prescriptive rules for how humans need to behave, but that these things have been almost contrary to human flourishing or happiness in terms of how historically the church has intervened in and almost guided in some ways some very unjust circumstances. And he takes issue with that here. Right. But I do think there is a reasonable response to that. And before I offer it, I should specify that my own theological commitments derive from both Thomas Munzer and from the social gospel articulated by Walter Rauschenbusch, both of whom would accept that church dogma is what has retarded human progress and has undermined the faith for millennia. And that has to do with the church itself being corrupted by worldly institutions, that it became a power broker unto itself. And since it's manned by fallible human beings, we can reasonably predict that this is what the outcome would be. But that is a problem with mankind itself, not with Christianity per se. Mankind will find a pretext to commit atrocities through any means. It just so happened to use Christianity for part of its history. But it can right. just think- easily use racialism or nationalism or any other imperial doctrine. Right. And I think what Russell would say to that is, you know, yes, it's it's possible that that other institutions and ideologies could have been used to those ends. But he might say that it says something about the nature of religion as it's existed uh, in the Western tradition, especially about how it is so readily wielded in that way. It says something because when you cite God as your authority, that is by definition, the highest authority. Right. And I think, I think Russell would take issue with that. He would say that that is, that that is his own problem in of itself, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. So naturally God is always going to be an attractive pretext for worldly ambitions, but it's only because it is the highest authority and therefore it has a resonance that say the king or the nation would have. It's transcendent, so it's hard to argue against. And that kind of segues into the next topic, which is the fear element as a foundation of religion. 
you know, why are we so united over these things in a way that even government can't do? Uh, it's this collective uh, fear of the unknown, of eternal damnation, of of not knowing the answers to these big questions, right? And I'm sure you'd like to expand a little bit more upon what he said here. Yeah, he he's trying to make the argument that the fact that religion per se is based upon systems of fear is one of the reasons why it's so dangerous that you can convince people of absurdity simply because mankind has a natural fear of the unknown. And once you start introducing notions of divine punishment, it make, it renders it all the more powerful and easily corruptible. But I don't believe that Christianity is fundamentally based upon fear, not when it's properly understood, not when you're following from the New Testament teachings. I think it has been rendered such throughout history, especially by the Catholic Church at various moments, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and even some of the evangelical Protestant sects that happened in the United States. But properly understood, I don't believe it is a religion based upon fear. And since this essay specifically concerns Christianity, I think he's off the mark there. I think that critique can be justly leveled at specific institutional instantiations of Christianity, but not of the faith per se. Right. And I so that, that would obtain in all of his critique after the Christ section of the essay where he's talking about religion as such. Well, while I think it's convenient to take that more generous interpretation of, you know, the biblical text in this way, what Russell would say is that that's not the totality of it, and that's certainly not what has been drawn upon in history, right, to enact these acts of cruelty that he's talking about. Right, and I would share his criticism because I'm not an apologist for the Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church or any other institutional form of Christianity. I can only speak for my own understanding of the faith. Absolutely. But I would agree that his arguments against those moments in history are valid because they did happen and they were atrocious. So I think that what Russell would say in conclusion is that be that as it may, if you take that interpretation or not, the fact that it has been wielded in such a way, all the other parts, is in itself cause for concern um, and should be looked at as a kind of demerit against the entire source material. Uh, I think that he might say that's fair. I'm not sure. I do tend to agree that things that are important to people, and this is the fundamental question at the end of the day, why are we here? What is the purpose of this? Is there going to be something after? What is the meaning, right? So this is something that you can see why it would be wielded like this. But I do think that what he's saying is absolutely a fair criticism to, to lob at this. Um, but he goes on to kind of purport that science, however, is here. We can actually interact with it. We can... Um, we can see its results. We can keep finding out more and more about the world that surrounds us, right? So he tries to say that that's where we should invest our time at this well, I point. Think that's a naive reading on Russell's part. And I think there's another issue at hand here. 
So while Russell drew attention to very valid areas where Christians had committed atrocities or retarded progress in human history, there have also been many moments in human history where Christianity was the animating force behind very important moral progress. So think of the abolitionist movement, for instance, that was headed by many people of Christian faith. Think of many moments in labor history where communists who were also Christians were moved to commit very important acts on behalf of workers in Europe and North America. Right, and I think there is absolute merit to that. Um, what I'm thinking Russell may say, there might be some incidental factor there, but I'm not necessarily agreeing with that. I think that great acts can be done by people of all faiths or lack of faith, right? Um, he may say it's incidental. I'm not sure uh, what he'd argue in that respect. We couldn't possibly know the counterfactual. And one more point, the naivete also has to do with science itself. Science is a neutral medium, and it has been used for good and for evil in this world. Just think of the history of eugenics. Think of the history of armaments technology. Think of all of the suffering that has happened at the hands of various scientists throughout history. But I do it, want to interject and and kind of say that it's only too funny that many of those scientists would probably represent themselves as Christian. Maybe it's so. ironic. But you couldn't you couldn't reconcile a eugenic position with Christian doctrine. If you did, you would be acting in a heretical manner. But and, I guess that's getting into an issue of hypocrisy, which is an entirely yeah, but, other. But, <laughs> but there's plenty of instances of secular and atheist scientists who committed atrocities throughout history. Oh, absolutely. And well, and I so tend to I draw attention to that. So I think that's disingenuous. And and this was in 1927 before some of the more modern instantiations of it took place. But nevertheless, a lot was to come. Right. And where I kind of branch off from Russell here is that I, I don't think that science here is the end all be all of these questions. I think that many of these questions will be unknowable uh, until the end of time, until, you know, we go supernova and we don't exist anymore. Th these are some things I believe are, are not going to be satisfactorily answered, but we can certainly understand more of the world around us through science. I just don't think it's going to answer these questions. No, probably not. But stepping away, because I think we pretty much covered the whole of why I'm not a Christian. I do want to say that as an atheist, and even today as a Christian, I would never affirm the position that one couldn't be a moral agent while simultaneously being an atheist. I acknowledge that one could be very virtuous without being a person of faith and vice versa. You could be moral reprobate and imbecile while claiming to be a Christian. So I don't think that there's a one-to-one -one relationship between morality and faith. Oh, absolutely. And we're in firm agreement here. I mean, this is why I kind of gave a background to, as to my history. You know, I grew up in a religious school setting, like my whole life, 
from elementary school, high school, and then I ended up attending a, a Jesuit university. But despite my lack of faith, I've tried to live my life in a certain way. And as you know, virtue ethics greatly informs my personal approach. Right. And I've always acknowledged that and I will continue to. So when Christians believe that they have an advantage over secular individuals vis-a-vis morality, I think that one needs to pause and reflect. There are certain things that a Christian can affirm that are by definition moral that a secularist couldn't, but that is unique to the faith. When we're speaking of practical ethics and interpersonal morality, that's a separate issue. Right. And I think many of those things that can be affirmed of a religious person that I could never are things that would aid them, perhaps in an afterlife that I don't even believe exists. What I try to do is live my life here on Earth most authentically and in a way that I think is just toward other people. And hypocrisy exists in all realms and atheists and believers alike. And it's just an unfortunate reality. And it might be due to the fallen nature of man. You know, the jury's out for me. But um, I really enjoy Russell's kind of positive spin at the end that, you know, maybe no matter what, science is the answer, perhaps, but we should make this world more fit to live in. And I'm sure that his political stance greatly informed this sort of positive bent at the end of the article. To be sure. And I would agree with that. So in conclusion, what you're saying is I haven't converted you to Christianity tonight. No, unfortunately you haven't, but I, as always, enjoy these debates. I look forward to them every time. Okay, well, thank you for coming on the podcast. Perhaps we can figure out something else to argue about in the future. (laughs) Yeah, thank you so much, Michael. It's been a pleasure. Please visit commonruin.wordpress.com for Marxist analysis from a paleo-communist perspective. And consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash commonruin. All patrons are given access to bonus content and other benefits. Thank you for listening. Mögen die herrschenden Klassen vor einer kommunistischen Revolution zittern. Die Proletarier haben nichts in ihr zu verlieren als ihre Ketten. Sie haben eine Welt zu gewinnen. Proletarier aller Länder, vereinigt euch. 